Hi, and welcome to VChat number three. Uh, today, myself, Eric, and uh, David Davis from Train Signal Videos are going to be talking about home labs. But first of all, Eric's got an update uh, for us from the uh, topic of last week on uh, power management within the ESX. Yeah, last week we talked a little bit about the uh, the power management feature of, of ESX. It's uh, new to version 4.1, and um, I actually did a, a bit of a post on it on my website that kind of went in some details on how it works and how to change some of the settings to enable it and that. And th there's not a lot of documentation on it from VMware itself that really covers how to use the feature, configure and set it up in that. So I was kind of going on what I had learned in the, um, the release candidate and what I learned from some VMware engineers, um, you know, during the, the beta process. But I got an update from um, someone at VMware. I think he's one of the VMware engineers. And um, he basically sent me an email just to kind of clarify the uh, displaying the host and the VM power usage. And his clarification was, the feature of displaying the, the host power consumption, now this is for the host, is not experimental and it's always on, but will always will will display zero watts if the host is not supported or does not have a power meter. And um, he's basically going on to say hopefully most people should not have to edit that uh, that sensor's VMware file to get support for their host. Um, but if you do, he had actually sent me instructions, which I'll, I'll post to my website, and he had in there kind of listed all the major manufacturers. So I think with the RC um, or with the, the beta versions, they only had uh, like a Fujitsu server in there, and when they yeah. finally went for the, the GA, they added all the other vendors. Um, like here, the one I'm looking at has uh, NEC, Hewlett-Packard, Dell, Fujitsu, Mitsubishi, Toshiba. So um, I'll post it on my uh, my website later on. It basically has all the examples for all the um, other manufacturers. So the host piece is supported, not experimental, and is on by, on, on by default. But the VM the feature where it shows the, uh, the power consumption per VM, that is considered experimental, and that is off by default. And that uh, advanced configuration option that we talked about last um, last week is how you enable it so you can actually see the, uh, the power consumption per VM. So you can see the host stuff by default, but if you want to see the VM stuff, you got to enable that, and it is considered kind of experimental at this point. Yeah. So it sounds like there might be a hardware requirement on the server to, to allow the, for this sort of uh, information to be read off the board. Yeah, I think it's the IPMI stuff. It's got to have the, the IPMI sensors for the power supplies. Right, right. So for a lot of people out there running home labs, for example, running desktop PCs, they're not going to uh, be able to take advantage of this. Uh, yeah, are. in a lot of yeah. cases of the white box, you probably not. Yeah, something to bear in mind. Okay, so today's topic is on home labs. Um, I think a topic very near and dear to uh, all of our hearts. So, uh, so you guys, I mean, I, I run a uh, VSV lab uh, home here. Been running it for quite some time now, um, and I take it both you run labs as well. Um, maybe uh, let's start with David. David, do you want to just give us a quick uh, overview of what what you run at home in your uh, own VSV lab environment there? Yeah, absolutely, Simon. Um, I started with uh, just VMware Workstation, really, and just a PC. And then running, you know, ESX underneath um, as a virtual machine and workstation, and then starting up maybe like another virtual machine to run um, a, a VSA like OpenFiler. In fact, I recorded one of my whole videos just using um, like four virtual machines, like one for virtual center, two for two ESX servers, and one um, as OpenFiler for my shared storage. And you can really do a lot, you know, with that just right there. Um, but over time, I, I felt like I needed more, you know, horsepower and wanted to run more and more virtual machines, which wasn't going to happen, you know, as a virtual machine underneath a virtual machine in workstation. Um, so I bought a couple uh, Dell T610s 
which are kind of their low-end, you know, SMB server. But but it is um, it does have Intel VT on it, you know, so and it is uh, compatible with like fault tolerance and um, and then after that later I upgraded and got a, an iOmega the uh, iX4 200D which has been really nice and so now I use that um, as an iSCSI you know storage array and um, can do just about anything I want with just two servers and that small NAS. So yeah, that's excellent. I I I pretty much went the same path around storage as yourself there. I mean, I, I used to run VMs locally, um, but over time, you know, I started sort of delving into shared storage. I, I personally found OpenFile a brilliant and ran that for for a, a long period of time. Um, it just so happens I, I was over in the states and I was going around a large appliance store over there, and they had the uh, the IX4 200s on on special over there. And with the um, UK conversion rate being so uh, attractive at the time, uh, I took the plunge and never looked back ever since. Actually, so I run my entire uh, entire environment at home here off my uh, IX4. Same here. That's the one I use. It's um, it's a great little unit. I like it a lot. I was looking to add another one um, to kind of add a little bit more diversity, you know, to have other units kind of, um, you know, play within that. So at some point I'll probably add a, another, um, you know, maybe a Synology or I looked at a couple other brands um, like the Netgears and that. They all have some pretty good stuff. So, But they have that model is perfect. It does iSCSI. It does NFS. Um, it provides you know, reasonable good performance in that. Um, it's not, you know, you're not going to run a big exchange server on it, but it's perfect for a home lab or a small environment. Um, does, you know, decent performance in that. It has a lot of great features, so I'm pretty happy with it. Now, Eric, you did an article um, for one of the Tech Target sites about uh, different home labs and SMB storage options. How did you do that, and what did it cover? Yeah, basically that was for uh, searchsmbstorage.com. And what I did was kind of cover, I kind of classified the devices in a couple classes. Um, the, the, the lower, low-end class, I, I went with under 5,000, so any devices that kind of were under that price tag. Um, and I stuck with that. I initially was going to go with more of the, uh, the middle tiers, at, you know, between like the five and 15,000, like the HP MSAs and that. But I stuck with the lower ones just uh, to keep the article in you know, a reasonable length. And um, so what I covered was from the all the way real small units down to like the little two drive, whether it's an iOmega, um, you know, even Synology, uh, uh, Netgear and all those have um, a lot of those little units, all the way up to some of the bigger units that were at the high end of that $5,000 price range, like the, uh, the newly released uh, iOmega, the iX12, which has 12 drives and a lot more uh, enterprise-type features than the iX4 does, and uh, some of the other bigger units from um, uh, Netgear and I think was uh, Overland Storage, I think was another one, and uh, HP, some of their other uh, X-Line of series um, that are kind of, the HP's lower end, the X500 and under, are all run the, uh, the Windows, um, kind of the Windows media software on it, so it doesn't really do um, iSCSI and that, so their, their higher end models are, are more of uh, the iSCSI and NFS, the X1000 and that, so I kind of focus on that. that that's right around the $5,000 range. But um, So I covered basically a, a wide range of the different storage devices, and um, we can post a link to that, but really kind of went through and kind of compared them all, whether they were supported on the, the vSphere hardware, um, hardware compatibility guide or not, um, whether they had iSCSI, whether they had NFS, kind of their cost, and uh, things like that. Just, uh, you know, it's a good comparison if people are looking to buy one of those units. Um, they can kind of see at a glance kind of what each one provides. Yeah, I thought that was a really good, good article. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I enjoyed reading that when you first published it there. It's definitely very good. So around servers, I mean, what, what do you guys run? What's your preference? Do you, do you prefer running a, a white box that you build yourself from going down to the local store or, you know, computer fair, assembling your own and then running it? Or do you go for more like a desktop-type arrangement, maybe entry-level server, or maybe you've sort of rescued a couple of old enterprise servers from the from the skip at work after a hardware refresh. Um, what, what's, what are you running around that, and what's your preference? Well, in my case, um, I started out with um, building a white box, which um, I was going to use for workstation and then kind of running VMs on that. So I, I built a pretty high-end white box. I kind of compared some of the features of the pre-built units, like the, the Dells and the HPs, but they didn't have exactly all the components I wanted, and to kind of make them... Um, suitable for, for use with workstation in that and in that environment, I'd have to do some changes to them. You know, typically for that environment, you don't need a, a high-end video card and stuff like that, and DVD burners and that. So, I bought the went with the white box, and I, I did a lot of research around the processor um, and the motherboard and memory and things like that. And I ended up with um, going with the Intel, um, the Core i7. Um, great processor, really powerful. The i7-920 was the one I chose, which was pretty reasonably priced at the time. It was only, you could find them for about anywhere from 200 to $250. And the good thing about that is, is, um, it's got a, it's a four core processor, but it also has hyper-threading. So essentially have, uh, you know, eight CPUs to use, uh, with, with workstation and that. So, um, and you got to pair it up with the right motherboard I did with, uh, that run DDR3 memory and that. And the big thing with motherboards was, with the white boxes is most of them you're limited to four slots and um, using two gig dims you're only limited to about eight gig total. Um, those four gig dims just are outrageously priced and not really worth it. So I, I found one that had six slots, so I was able to get up to um, 12 gig total, which was, was pretty decent for workstation. It gave me a lot of RAM to work with and that. So that was for that. I, you know, I kind of grew out of that after you know a few months. I wanted. <laughs> With the white box, you've got to be careful that it doesn't support a lot of the features, you know, like the um, some of the things like uh, VM Direct Path and some other features that require specific hardware options. So I went with, when looking around at uh, kind of the low-end server market, the name brand market, and I looked at Dell, I looked at IBM, um, and then I finally chose HP, um, mainly because um, based off the hardware compatibility guide, their lower-end servers had um, most of the features that I could use, you know, things like fault tolerance, VM direct pass. I don't want yeah. to play with and that. That for some of the other brands, I had to go up a little bit more to be able to get some of that stuff. Um, I stuck with Intel. Um, the main reason for that was the, the server I actually chose was the HP ML ML 110 G6. Um, yeah. But well, the reason I chose Very Intel important. was because uh, VM direct path really only works with Intel right now. You can't the, the AMD the IO MMU isn't out yet. I think it's finally coming out with the the ProLiant the uh, G7 line and that. So I wanted that feature to be able to try that and play with it. You know, that I is, probably wouldn't use it all that much. There's one thing around that, Eric, is the, um, I mean, I, I don't think it's common knowledge out there. So you uh, entry-level HP servers, you've got the MR1110 and, and the AMD-based 115s. So the 115s, it looks like they're going end of life with this uh, current G5 model. Um, okay. So, unfortunately, yeah, end of the road, which is a shame because price-wise, uh, they, they were offering the quad-core version far far before the uh, uh, the, the, the ML110 G5s were and, and for a much more competitive price. So um, I've been running a couple of home here for a while and uh, great little boxes, but they're pretty much 
end of life now um, with the 115 series. So the 110 G6, which you have, uh, will definitely be paving the way in a, paving the way, uh, in a, in a lot of uh, home labs around the world, I'd imagine. Yeah, and the price was good because I got it, I think, for around 550 for um, kind of the bare-bones box with, you know, a hard drive and everything else. Um, but obviously you got to – you want to add memory, you want to add NICs and stuff like that, and that's where it can get pretty pricey. You can pay, you know, almost as much as you did for the server just for adding that stuff and that. So, um, you know, I pretty much got all mine up to 8 gig, and then um, I got uh, two um, dual-port NICs, so I got a total of uh, five NICs in each of them and that. And with that ML110G6, you got to be careful because it comes in about four different processor arrangements that you can buy all the way from the i3 now. Uh, to the 5430, the 5440, um, yep. but not all those are covered with fault tolerance. So if you want to use fault tolerance, you actually got to make sure you, you choose your processor right. I went with the 5440, which had the extra advantage of having hyper-threading, which also yep. gave me those additional, you know, um, threads or cores to play with. Well, most of the G6 models are in there, and the, uh, the ML110 series are the 5530 CPU, so I think a lot of people buy them thinking they're going to get the hyper-threading as well. Um, so to actually get the, uh, the, the, um, the hyper-threading model, the one you've got there is, uh, I mean, at least here in the UK, I'm finding it a lot harder to get hold of. Um, okay. So yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I did a lot of research on making sure that I didn't want to buy this thing and found out I couldn't use it with a certain feature. So I spent a lot of time making sure every little thing, you know, all the way from, um, you know, the VM Direct Path stuff to the default tolerance and all those features. Um, and I wanted all the power stuff to work. Um, we're present on that. So um, mm-hmm. you really should do your homework um, when you're looking at that. And I actually published a couple articles on that that basically kind of detailed both my um, the white box I built for um, use with the workstation and the um, the, uh, the ML110s, that whole stuff, all the how I went through and kind of the methodology I, I used to choose the hardware I chose. Yeah, yeah. No, very good boxes. I mean, they're sound. I mean, mine have been running here 24-7 for probably the last year, easily year and a half, <laughs> with, with, with the slightly older ones. So so what about you, David? What What's your preference when it comes to servers well, for, for the home uh, I mean, that is? I started off, you know, building a white box server and, you know, I, I think I had good experiences with that, and then I also had not so good experiences with that when, you know, maybe I didn't do my research completely or I made a rush purchase or whatever. And um, later, you know, kind of like Eric, I, I really wanted to make sure on my next server purchase that I was able to use all the advanced features of vSphere. So, you know, I basically went off the hardware compatibility guide, and I was ple- I was really pleasantly surprised at um, the low price of a server, you know, that I found that was still on the hardware compatibility guide and could do everything. And I compared that to, you know, like the white box server I was looking to build, you know, maybe for a thousand bucks. And, um, you know, the, the Dell server I was looking at was like 1400 and it, you know, it had eight gigs of Ram and it looked like it was going to be able to do everything. So I thought it was a, a, a better option, um, just to get that comfort, you know, to know it's on the HC, HCL or HGG and, uh, you know, could do everything. That I really wanted, so. Yeah, they're a nice entry-level little server. I mean, they're quite comparable, aren't they, to the uh, the ML110s and 115s in uh, specification and features, and also chipsets as well, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And the big thing with those, too, is they're quiet. You don't have the big uh, noise, jet engine-type noise you have on some of those bigger <laughs> servers and that. So for a home lab, you know, if it's an office or whatever, or even in your dining room, you know, it's not going to be generating a lot of noise in that. Was they're just nice and really quiet and uh, perform real well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think there's something that catches a lot of people out, you know. I mean, they get these second-hand servers from work and think, brilliant, you know. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've got these servers from work, and I'll, I'll take them home, and they put them in their home office or in the corner of their lounge, you know, and, uh, yeah, quite often don't quite think it through. Or even worse, you know, they buy these servers off of eBay, and it's not until they get them home they sort of, the penny drops, you know. Um, <laughs> I've heard many a story around that. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Is, is a power consumption because these ML110s will only use about maybe 100 to 130 watts, where those bigger servers use, you know, three, 400 watts, so definitely can drive up your power bill. Yeah, I, I bought a nice little power meter up here, and um, I mean, running about half a dozen VMs with my uh, ML115, for example, it, it, it will sit on about 86 to 90 watts quite happily, just oh, wow. ticking along. Um, so that's, that's pretty good. I mean, for me, the thing I've learned the lesson uh, over the last sort of, you know, 18 months, two years around lab services, not to worry about the CPU too much. Um, well, Definitely pay attention to the CPU if you want the, you know, the advanced features like uh, fault tolerance, very important, obviously. Uh, AMD V and uh, Intel VT, obviously very, very important. But uh, these days I tend to look more for the, uh, the, the, uh, the area that you touched on just before, Eric, was around the amount of sockets. Um, because in my lab servers here, you know, I've, I've, I'll have a single socket quad core sitting there probably with 10, 20% utilization tops. Uh, but the area where my um, my lab servers really suffer is memory. It's not having enough memory to allocate. Okay. And obviously, the more memory I can throw into these boxes, it, does, it means that I don't need to run, you know, two, three lab servers at once. I can just load them up with more VMs. So for me, that's that's always quite an important area. So so I guess another area around lab servers is network cards. I mean, what, what are your guys' preferences around that? Do you do you uh, use VLANing in your labs, or do you go for like a dual port? Um, uh, a neck or quad port, or, or a mixture of uh, all three. Well, for me, I, I like to have the, a lot of NICs available, just so I can do different configurations and play with things. And that. So um, when I initially looked, I um, I looked at the Intel NICs. I, I priced the HP ones because I kind of wanted to stick with all the HP components inside that ML110. But it was almost double the price. It was about 240 bucks for a, a dual port NIC. Um, I went kind of like just looking through AmazonBuy.com and found the almost exact same board in the Intel brand um, that didn't, basically wasn't. Um, I forget the exact model, but um, it, it, was, it was almost even looks identical, um, same chipset and everything, uh, for half the price. So for 120 bucks, I got a um, a PCIe, and that's another thing. The PCIe adapters are are way more expensive than the, the regular PCIe-X or PCI adapters. Um, they're almost double the cost, so anything PCIe is pretty expensive, too. And these ML110s have three PCIe slots and I think one PCIe-X slot. So, so I, I ultimately went with um, the um, the Intel, um, the dual port, and then um, actually I, there was somebody at HP that was kind enough to send me some of the uh, uh, the dual port HP branded NICs also, so I ended up with uh, five total. So, nice. Uh, but the, I priced the quad ports, and the quad port next they were pricey. They were up four or five hundred bucks for even the cheapest. And yeah. so I figured I would just, you know, go with the dual ports. And um, you know, that seemed. Uh, I, personally, I think you know, even three nicks is is good for a lot of configurations. But if you can get up to four and five, it gives you a lot more flexibility for what you can, you know, if you want to try different configurations and mess around with things. Um, it definitely, you know, gives you more options. Yeah. I mean, from a uh, VLANing perspective, I think as long as you can have a dedicated uh, NIC port for um, uh, for the fault tolerance, um, B-Motion, uh, and also if you're running sort of iSCSI or uh, NAS storage, if, if you can get a tick in the box in all three of those and dedicate a, uh, a dedicated physical port, the rest VLANing around the service console and the VM traffic I don't think is as, as important, especially in a lab environment. 
Uh, well, the trick I did with that. Different story. Little trick I did with that was um, for my uh, for like my I wanted to create a, a separate VM kernel network, but really the only the, the hosts need to connect to that. So instead of connecting those backs of the switch from each NIC port, I um yeah you know, I, I saved myself some switch ports, but it's connecting a cable directly from NIC to NIC, and um, that way you know they're both online, they could both use that, and I saved you know myself a couple switch ports like that. So that's always an option with most of these modern NICs. So auto sense, you don't need a crossover cable. So you just plug in a regular old NIC cable between the two NICs on one server to the other server, and um, they're connected. Wow, that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, that's smart. What about you, Sam? Yeah, I think I mean, yeah, I mean, I have a combination. I was just thinking, I think I'm in the middle of, like, rebuilding my lab at the moment. So I've got, I've been putting all my spares in here. So Simon's I was going to see a like, demonstration guy. Yeah, yeah, well, um. Can I carry that? No, I, actually, I think it's in the cupboard. Done. I was going to just show you a couple of the um, the uh, uh, dual and quad ports uh, next that I quite often use. Um, off the top of my head, it's normally I use the Intel. Uh, um, uh, is it the Pro Thousand Pro VT? Yeah, the the Pro One Thousand. They're PT. It's like sorry, a GT, the PT. Uh, PT GT MT, and they have to do with the type of bus, um, what, you know, PCIe versus PCIX and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. make sure you get the right number there. There's a, Intel has a comparison matrix on their website that says what each of those means. The, you know, like you said, the PT, and I think there was a couple other models. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got a couple of HP cards as well. Very, very good, but, um, you know, luckily I, I, I was given those because they were uh, incorrectly purchased for a particular project um, quite a while back, and uh, they were just kicking around, and the guy said, look, if you want to take a couple, you're more than welcome. And uh so that was lucky, but uh, the rest of them I've, I've just bought off of eBay, um, and, and uh, like I say, sort of generally tend to sway towards the uh, the Intel-based uh, um, uh, chips next. So I'll tell you a little story about about Nix. Since we're on that topic, you know, I bought these uh, the Nix for this host that had uh, two of the uh, of the dual port cards in these ML110 G6s, and um, one day I found that the I, I can no longer see one of the Nix. Um, so I, I basically moved the NICs from to a different slot, and um, it worked fine over there. And any time I put the NIC back into that one slot, it quit working. And that so I'm a little puzzled there, like, well, well, you know, is it a bad slot on the uh, the motherboard or whatnot? Um, because anything the NICs work fine in any other slot, but except for that one slot, when I plugged them in there, they no longer work. So ended up calling HP, have them come out. You know, I figured I talked to them on the phone actually first. They sent somebody out, replaced the motherboard. And um, guess what? They replaced the motherboard and still didn't work. So kind of the light bulb went off at that point. I'd been messing with VM Direct Path um, before that. And when you assign a NIC to VM Direct Path, it basically, unassigned, nothing else can use it. ESX can't see it or nothing like that. So by me assigning that to VM Direct Path, um, ESX plane would no longer see that. I forgot about that. So um, once I went in there and actually uh, disabled that VM Direct Path, you know, for that NIC, it saw it again. So um, if you use VM Direct Path. The other thing is with VM Direct Path, if you use one NIC, if you assign one NIC to, um, like, a, let's say you got a quad port, if you assign just you want to assign just one of those ports to the um, VM Direct Path, it's going to take that whole because because they're bridges essentially. It's a PCI bridge with all four ports on one card. It's going to take them all. So you can't, if, if you're planning to use VM Direct Path, just be aware that VM Direct Path is going to take all the ports on that NIC. So um, just be careful of that when you're using that. Hmm. Yeah, a couple of good tips there, definitely. definitely. Yeah. I can see those catching uh, quite a few people out. 
So, so I guess another thing is as well, right, uh, your, your lab environments at home there, do you run them 24-7 or do you just turn them on sort of as and when needed? I was just going to say I totally waste power by running it 24-7, but you know, I think that's mostly because I, I never know when I'm going to want to use it. I might want to sit in bed with a laptop in the middle of the night and you know, do stuff in the lab, and I want it to be up and running first thing you know, a few hours later when I wake up. So I just never know. So, yeah, it, it runs all the time. But recently I did enable um, the power management controls, and I'm going to put on DPM also to try to you know, shut down a server um, okay. when it's not in use. But what about you guys? Um, on mine, you know, I initially kept them on all the time. Um, you know, they don't make much noise in that, but um, down in my little uh, man cave down here, there's no um, air conditioning, so it stays pretty cool. But with those servers running in the summer when it's really hot out, it gets to you know 70, 78, 80 degrees in that. So I've kind of I've had them off for a few weeks now, and uh, we'll probably turn them on. But since they're so quiet and they don't really consume much power, and especially like you said, if you use some of the power management features like DPM or my servers also support the uh, the PC stuff, the DVFS, um, there really is not much, you know, cost to, to keep them on running, you know, 24-7. And like you mentioned, convenience-wise, um, being able to use them on the fly with, instead of having to wait for them to boot up and all that stuff, um, you know, it's definitely a lot easier. Mm. Yeah, it's not like... No, same, same as myself. Generally, they're on 24-7 here. Um, I've got a tiny room here. Uh, my man cave's absolutely tiny. And, um, yeah, yeah, at the moment I have a fan sitting down here in the corner just blowing onto the servers, just trying to keep it all cool. But, uh, yeah, air conditioning would be nice, but, um, yeah, maybe I should look at powering one down, I think. So neither one of you guys have a Solera in your basement, though? No, no heavy-duty <laughs> iron. I would quite fancy one. I uh, wouldn't, like uh, wouldn't like the power bill, but, uh, I, mean, I mean, talking of the Solera, though, I mean, there's a really good um, uh, VSA out there. Uh, virtual storage appliance that you can download and use for free, um, fully featured. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I gave that, that a go uh, for the first time uh, last weekend, and, yeah, I was very impressed with it. It's good, good functionality, and the fact that it's free as well, and it's not really uh, limited uh, in any way as such, uh, I think it's quite amazing. You know, I never used uh, the VSAs. How did you guys find the transition from the VSAs to things like the dedicated iOmegas? Did you see you know, better management performance, things like that. And, you know, when, you know, it's all in one unit, so it's a lot easier to maintain in that. But um, did you, would you, what, what do you think of the pros and cons of using the VSA compared to, like, a dedicated device? Or, or? I sort of went the other way. I mean, I, my open file I was running, I was actually running on a dedicated uh, ML1110, uh, one of the old okay. G4 models. And so that just sat in the corner, wearing away. So I wasn't actually running that as a VSA as such. Um, I've run the HP left-hand uh, VSAs before, found those very good. Uh, but unfortunately, they're 30-day time limited. So really, you've only got enough time just to, uh, you know, power them up, uh, muck around with a couple of uh, few bits and pieces uh, before it runs out. And uh, unless you want to go reinstalling it all again from fresh, which is a real hassle. Uh, although yeah, that's quite of, easy to do. Um, it's not really I'm worth it. kind of lumping the... Uh like the open flowers and the star ones in that category, you know, it's basically software, you know, turning into shirt swords. So um, have, you, have you tried the Starwind stuff yet, you know, compared to the open flower? Yeah, I've tried Starwind. Um, and, I mean, I, I really like the Starwind, the whole product line, because it, it goes up to some really advanced features like, you know, wide area network um, data synchronization and all kinds of stuff. Um, but um, honestly, I... I, I like the simplicity of not having to load windows, and that was, the to me, one okay. of the downsides, you know, of Starwind. Yeah, it's Whereas, not a pre-built VM. Yeah, OpenFiler, you know, it's just a real simple, quick Linux install. Okay. 
Um, at my previous company, we ran, we had about 35 virtual machines in production running on a physical open file or server. We did that for about a year, and uh, it actually worked really well. We were really pleased. Um, but like here in the lab, um, my, I've never had open file running on a physical server. I've always just run it as a virtual machine. Um, but then oh, okay. I was always I was always limited by the physical storage, you know, on the server that it was on. Okay. And so I would end up, you know, using some. I would only be able to run a few virtual machines, and then I later I'd have to wipe it out and rebuild something else. And so that was kind of what led me towards um, getting a, a physical a disk array, a small disk array um, that had a lot more storage. Um, but yeah, I tried the left hand. I tried um, Open Filer and Starwin. Uh, now I haven't okay. tried the Solera VSA yet, but I'd like to try that. Now, and I think the the cost has come down so much on these dedicated little storage appliances that you know even if you yeah. can get a two drive unit, the iX2, um, and um, it's so much simpler. You just basically plug it in and you're up and running, and that's so definitely a good option, especially for home labs. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if I've you heard mixed reviews about the uh, about the iX2 there. Um, some people I know that have bought them uh, absolutely love them. Um, but I know others that uh, sort of quite hardcore uh, <laughs> virtualization guys um, that have installed one into their lab and it just hasn't quite performed. You know, at the end of the day, I suppose, you know, it is to be expected. You've only got two spindles um, running within the environment there. So, you know, the yeah. amount of biops you're going to get out of that is going to be pretty limited. That's why I quite like the iX4, you know, over over four spindles. I think it just gives, give, gives it that little edge. It gives it enough to make it, uh, you know, usable in a maybe, you know, a six to ten um, uh, VM lab environment. Yeah, spindles make a difference. And also between the iX2 and the iX4, um, there's a memory and CPU difference too. So the iX4 is a faster unit with more memory than the iX2. So I did my homework on those to, to find out exactly what the comparison was between the two. And um, between all three of those three, you know, the spindle, CPU, and memory, the iX4 definitely gives you more bang for the buck. Yeah, I mean, if, and if you compare the price of an iX4 to trying to build a a server with, you know, four drives and basic RAID and then put something like OpenFiler on it, I, I bet the cost would, you know, probably be about the same. You'd have a much physical, much larger physical, you know, box to maintain. Um, so the iOmega seems like a good option. Seems quite good. I'm surprised the Netgears haven't really, uh, I mean, they, they look rather good units as well, but I, I haven't heard of anyone really buying and using them, although that, those two are also VMware certified. Um, that they just haven't been quite as popular out there. You know, I I'm, I'm, was close to buying one myself. Um, you know, it was between a toss-up for my next one. You know, SCI Omega here was a toss-up between the Netgear and the Synology. The Synology had some really good models, too. But the Netgear, they, they seemed like really solid units in that. Um, you know, the, the, the price was a little bit higher on those in that. Um, but um, some of the lower-end units are, aren't, you know, that much more than the iOmega. The iOmega definitely has a great, you know, cost point you know it, it you can get it pretty dang cheap and um and it has a lot of good features and it's reliable so but um i, I would definitely if i was in the market for one also look at the netgears and the synologies and some of the other units out there yeah i guess another another brand out there uh, we haven't covered is the uh, drobo the data robotics drobo oh They're yeah quite nice little units um you know the one quite good. the only thing is though to get I, I have a Drobo in my lab here, but unfortunately it's only USB-based, so I can't use it for any sort of real, uh, <laughs> any, anything apart from storing photos and the like. But uh, they do an, a network uh, model, which I believe you can download uh, iSCSI um, uh, application onto it, uh, which will Actually, then allow no, you to the, uh, surf content. It's off. the NFS app you can download for it. 
Oh, is it the NFS? Is it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they only have NFS up. It's, it's not. It's not actually VMware certified. Um, I actually looked into that one because it is a lower cost point than that. Um, but they mm-hmm. do. That one has all those little apps you can plug into it. And um, there was an NFS app for it, and that there was no iSCSI, and that was kind of like the, the one thing that kind of turned me off about the Drobos was to get iSCSI, you had to go all the way up to their very higher end models, which were well over a thousand dollars without yeah. drives. So, but they, they look like great solid units, though. Yeah, I mean the Drobo Pro and the Drobo Elite are definitely a prosumer uh, type uh, devices, and. Uh, Definitely for people such as myself, I think that, that unfortunately the great units really are, you know, and you will get that iSCSI functionality and what have you, but uh, price points, it's just, just slightly outside of yeah. uh, my budgets, you know, even if you're providing your own discs. Because that, that was always something I quite liked about the Drobos. You could oh, literally, you, you had the units and you bring your own discs to the party and you slot them in. So uh, I always quite like that feature, but uh, like I said, unfortunately the uh, Drobo Pro, Drobo Elite, just a little bit outside my budget, but uh, from what I've seen them, nice, nice units, so very nice. And the other nice thing about those was they had that kind of unique RAID feature, I forget what they call Beyond RAID, that um, basically yeah, lets yeah. you mix and match drive sizes, types, and all that stuff in there. Um, while that sounds like a nice feature, I'd be a little bit concerned about the, the performance. So when you're mixing and matching like that, you know, how does it actually perform with, you know, different types and models of drives in there? But, you know, it's good for someone, you know, if you just have a couple of drives laying around and you want to throw them in there and you don't, don't have to worry about and what size and all like that. You can rebuild things. You can increase things, the size on the fly and stuff like that. So kind of a neat feature to, to have. It's going to be interesting, isn't it, to so fast forward maybe, you know, three, four years when the price of SSDs are dropped right down um, yeah. as well. You know, how's that going to look? I mean, you know, their form factor, the much smaller, you know, their little two-and-a-half-inch form factor. I mean, are, are devices such as the Drobo, the iAmigas, you know, um, the data spindles, uh, you know, uh, technology is definitely numbered. Um, how far advanced or how far away that is is, is is unknown. But, I mean, it's surely it's just a matter of matter of years. And these, these home devices are going to be, you know, even more quiet, cheaper to run, uh, and definitely more performance as well once uh, the prices of SSD start dropping. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. That's it's great technology. So I understand that you two guys are going to be presenting at VMworld this year on this exact topic, on home labs. You guys want to talk about that? Um, Sure. We got a a session approved. Um, Actually, I think there was probably at least four or five submissions on, like, that home lab topic. I think, Simon, Simon, did you have one also? Yeah, yeah, I submitted one as well. Yeah, it was definitely quite quite a popular topic topic this year. Yeah, I think Eric Sloof and uh, Simon Gallagher, and uh, there was a couple that had them. So, luckily, I I got one approved. And, um, you know, since there were so many other sessions out there, I, I decided to add some of the people that had some of those other sessions. So, I... I asked Simon um, here, Simon Seagrave, if he wanted to be part of that, and also Simon Gallagher, um, who kind of did the uh, the big VTARDIS thing, running all the workstation on a laptop <laughs> with all sorts of ESX hosts, ESXi hosts and that. So the three of us will be doing a, a session, I think it's on Monday um, at either noon or 1.30, and um, we'll basically cover, you know, pretty much a lot of things we talked about here. We'll be covering, you know, choosing server hardware, um, running, you know, nested uh, ESX, ESXi, and workstation, um, choosing storage, choosing networking, choosing components, and all things like that. So um, should be a good session. You know, the three of us have a combined uh, pretty good knowledge and a lot of experience with that stuff. So I think it'll turn out pretty good. Yeah, I look forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun, you know, to uh, co-present with you guys. And uh, I think it's going to be a case of really trying to cram everything into, what, the 45, 50-minute slot we have. Um, there's so much yeah. content to cover there. We're, we're going to have to talk pretty quickly. Yeah, it'll be a challenge, but it should be fun. Yeah, I really like the title. It says Affordable Labs. 
So I think that's really eye-catching because, you know, a lot of people, of course, are interested in getting the absolute, you know, lowest price home lab that they can get. So I, I definitely registered for the session, and uh, I even wrote down the number if anybody wants to go check it out right now. It's V18328, and it is, um, like you said, on Monday at 1.30. And that was the other part of the title was, you know, home labs don't necessarily have to be for home labs. You can take that and put that in a, you know, like a small business environment and, and yeah. use it. You know, some of that low-end low hardware it would be perfectly suitable for using in a, in a small business as a virtualization solution as well. So I kind of titled it as both as a home lab solution and, you know, maybe a solution for a small business that want to get started with virtualization. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because my, actually my home lab doubles for a production environment as well yeah. for my uh, for my other half Sarah. She uh, I actually run her her work environment. Um, so there's uh, three of them in total, but uh, you know everything from email uh, through to uh, uh, virtual desktops, everything running off my um, my lab at home here. Oh, cool! Yeah, definitely. It's... So, David, I hear there's a new train signal video uh, out this week, rather exciting, Volume 2 of the, uh, the Advanced vSphere series. Uh, get, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, absolutely, yeah. Um, it's vSphere Pro Volume 2, and it's 21 hours, um, and we've got you know, some very familiar names. We've got um, Sean Clark, or V. Sean Clark from Twitter. Uh, he covers Site Recover Manager. Um, Hal Rottenberg is back covering... Um, Power CLI, and he, he goes into using Power CLI for um, performance and troubleshooting in vSphere. Um, I covered the Veeam management suite and the new version of VMware Data Recovery. And then, um, of course, Eric Siebert uh, also covered some advanced vSphere topics. And um, that's a kind of a broad a generalization of what he covered because he covered a lot of cool stuff. Um, Eric, you want to talk a little bit about some of the different uh, topics that you covered? Sure. Um, you know, I kind of want to focus on some of the features, um, maybe some of the features that, in vSphere that people didn't know too much about and uh, want to get more experience with. So um, the features I covered were uh, VM Direct Path, uh, Paravirtual SCSI adapters, um, the VMCI, VM communication, communication Interface, Fault Tolerance, Thin Provisioning, vMotion and Storage vMotion, Distributed Power Management, uh, distributed uh, or dynamic voltage and frequency scaling, which allows you to change that P state, C state. And then uh, finally, we covered the um, uh, growing VMFS volumes on the fly and um, hot adding virtual disks to VMs. And also covered a lot of storage tips in that one also, just on, you know, configuring storage and converting and increasing the size of uh, disk partitions and that. So, um, yeah, I think it was, a, it was a fun experience and I think it turned out real well. Yeah, I saw you made a, a real nice uh, blog post about, you know, your experience recording the videos and stuff over on vSphereLand.com. Yeah, it was all new to me. So, um, you know, I wanted to, um, you know, it was a learning experience. I learned a lot, and it was definitely, you know, making the video part was, um, uh, you know, definitely a, a good process that I learned a lot from. So um, it, was, it was fun, though. I had a lot of fun doing it. Well, good, good. So that's excellent. So I think that pretty much covers everything off for today. I mean, we've uh, spoken about um, uh, some more information about the power management within ESX, ESXi from Eric there. Uh, we've discussed um, uh, our virtualization labs and our thoughts on the various components, everything from servers to the storage, um, you know, memory, network cards. Uh, could have gone on for a lot longer, no doubt. But um, And also the uh, the, the new um, uh, train signal uh, video there, all very exciting. So um, I don't know whether you guys have anything else to add? Um, no. 
Uh, for more information on Home Labs, um, John Troyer has a community podcast, um, number 79. If you want to listen to that as well, I think uh, it'll also give you a lot more information about Home Labs. And uh, we'll be posting some Home Lab links uh, when we post the VChat episode as well. Uh, there's a lot of great links out there. I know Simon and Eric both have some good links on their blogs. So that's all for me. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's been great.